5, Mark chapter 5, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark. The message this morning is Jesus' power over danger, demons, disease, and death. Let's read verses 1 through 20, and then we'll go through the passage and see what it has to say to us. Chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. It says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often bound, been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, that is, Jesus said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding near the mountains. So all the demons begged Jesus, saying, Send us to the swine, and we may enter in. And once Jesus gave them permission, then the, clean, the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled. And they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him, who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with Jesus to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed, and he began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. So after the disciples had experienced that terrible storm in chapter uh, chapter 4, which was a lesson in faith, you can bet that the disciples were a little wiser and a little stronger because of that experience. But as Jesus and his, and his disciples came into the country of the Gadarenes here in chapter 5, and as they're getting out of their boat, immediately they encounter a man with an unclean spirit there in verse 2. Now, according to Matthew eight twenty eight, there were two demon-possessed men, but one of them seems to be the more vocal, you know, does all the talking. And in this passage, we see three different forces at work. We see Satan at work, society at work, and Jesus at work. Now the thing that brought about and triggered and called for this miracle was the wild behavior of the demon-possessed man. 
The way he behaved is a good example of the work that Satan and sin does on the human race. And three forces, those three forces are still at work in our world today, trying to control the lives of people, Satan, society, and Jesus. The first one we want to look at, the first force that we want to look at as Satan, what Satan can do to people. The Bible says that Satan is a thief and a father of them, and he's a liar, or I should say he's a father of liars, he's a thief, and his absolute goal is to destroy life, to kill us. Jesus said the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Now the Bible doesn't tell us how the demons entered into these two men, but it could have been the result of both of them giving in to sin of some kind. Now demons are, <clears throat> are unclean spirits. And they can easily get a foothold in the lives of people who are involved in sinful practices. You know, like you know, those that like to you know, get involved in seances or, or play with Ouija boards thinking they're all innocent and, and fun you know, games. That could have given, that, they could have given in to Satan. Again, who's a thief. And as a result, these two men lost everything. Now, demons and demon possession is pretty much joked about here in the United States. A lot of people just, you know, make a big joke of it. But in many mission fields, uh, demon possession is, is a common thing. The devil is even thought to be almost a cartoon character or a religious myth by a lot of people. But demon possession is becoming more common in today's society. In an interview with the National Catholic Register, a priest named Vincent Lampert said that he sees an increasing number of people involved in satanic rituals opening themselves up to evil. You see, if you practice those things, you get involved with those things, it's a door for Satan to come in. The priest said the problem isn't that the devil has upped his game, but more people are willing to play it. And he pointed to rampant pornography, illegal drugs, uh, and, and the occult. He said where, the de- where, where, where there is demonic activity, there was always an entry point. We have psychic readers nearly in every city. You have palm readers, you have tarot card readers, fortune tellers, you know, psychic hotlines. And this debate among Christians and non-Christians will go on. It'll go on and on as to whether this kind of entertainment, you know, if you want to call it entertainment, uh, is just entertainment or if there are harmful effects of it from it. Today, again, we have tons of movies and TV shows that deal with the occult. We got these guys, you know, these paranormal guys that are out searching for ghosts. You got TV programs that have to do with witchcraft. And so it's very popular today. We live in a society that approves of and promotes witchcraft and the occult. And yet God's word is very clear. It tells us we are not to have anything to do with the occult. God's word specifically forbids us to practice fortune telling or witchcraft. Leviticus 19.26. That means that you're not to have anything to do with it. With fortune telling, witchcraft, sorcery, astrology, practicing magic or casting spells and and so forth. 
divination, which is fortune-telling, was one way of trying to know and control the world and the future apart from the true living God. It was the opposite of true prophecy, which is basically submission to God's sovereignty. And Jesus said, without me, without me, you can do nothing. Leviticus 19.31 specifically says, Do not defile yourselves by turning to mediums or to those who consult the spirits of the dead. I am the Lord your God. In other words, you want to know about the future. You want to know what's going to happen. You come and see me. You read the scriptures. And because these two men here gave in to Satan, they lost everything. They lost jobs. They lost homes, families, and friends. They lost their decency. Matthew says they ran around naked in the tombs. They lost their self-control. They lived like wild animals, screaming, cutting themselves, scaring the people in the area. They lost their peace. They lost their direction and their purpose in life. They would have stayed that way if... It hadn't been for Jesus Christ who came through the storm. Remember from chapter 4, crossing over to the other side where he met these two demon-possessed men. He came through the storm to meet these men and to heal them, to rescue them. Now, never, never take Satan lightly or take him as a joke. Never underestimate his power to destroy He is our enemy, and he would destroy each and every one of us if he could. Like a roaring lion, James says. These two men who were dwelling among the tombs, they were dwelling among the dead. They were the extreme example of what Satan can do to people and should make us want to resist him. To have nothing to do with him. The second force at work on these men was society which wasn't able to do very much for them. About the only thing society can do for people, for problem people, is isolate them, put them in prison, and give them drugs. Many times these men were chained, but the demons gave them strength to break those chains, verse 3 and 4 tell us. And even when they tried to, to tame these men, they couldn't do it. And even today, with all of the scientific advancement and education and miracle drugs, you know, in psychology and psychiatry, uh, society can't help them. They can't cope with and permanently solve the problems caused by Satan and sin. Then the third force is that of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do for these men? Well, for a starter, he graciously came to them in his love and even through a storm to do it. Not only did Jesus come to them, but he talked to them and he allowed them to talk to him. Society avoided these men, but Jesus went to them with love and respect. You know, it's interesting to see that The demons confessed what they really believed in verse 7. Notice what it says in verse 7. And they cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. So again, they, 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 they revealed what they really believed. They had faith. 
They even tremble because of what they believe, James 2.19 tells us. But their faith and their fear couldn't save them. The demons believed here that Jesus is the Son of God. They believed Jesus had authority over them. They believed that that Jesus could, could, could judge them and cast them into hell. I mean, these, these, these demons believed a lot more than a lot of religious people do today. The man who spoke had a legion of demons, verse 9 says. And, and, a, and a legion was a unit of the Roman army that was made up, for, made up of 3,000 uh, 3, to 6,000 foot soldiers. So th- these men had anywhere from 3,000 to 6,000 demons. I mean, what torment this man must have gone through every single day. Satan trying to destroy him. While Jesus came to deliver them. Jesus said, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy man's lives, but to save them. We can see here that the demons didn't know what Jesus was going to do with them. You know, what do we have to do with you, Jesus? What are you going to do with us? And because they didn't know what Jesus was going to do with them, that suggests that Satan cannot know the future. <clears throat> he doesn't know God's plans unless God reveals them. And nowhere in Scripture is there any evidence that Satan can read the mind of the believer, let alone the mind of God. And remember, Satan is not God's equal. It doesn't even come close. Satan is not omniscient. He's not omnipotent, nor is he omnipresent. So why did God send the demons into the pigs? Now, some, some people ask, you know, well, what right did Jesus have to destroy these people's pigs? Well, first of all, these men were Jews. They weren't supposed to be raising and selling pigs. They were unclean, according to the law. Secondly, Jesus was free to send the demons wherever he desired. He can do whatever he pleases. But why the pigs? It was proof to all of those that were watching that a miracle had taken place. The destruction of the pigs also assured them that the demons were gone. But more than anything else, it was a clear lesson to this crowd that to Satan, a pig is as good as a man. Satan doesn't care who you are, what you are. To Satan, a pig is as good as a man, and many times Satan will turn a man into a pig. Satan will evil turn a man into a pig because of sin. This here was a visual sermon of those that were watching that the wages of sin is death. And now, the keepers of the pigs, those who were taking care of the pigs, they wanted to, they want to be blamed or don't want to be blamed for the loss of the pigs. So what do they do? They tell the owners what had happened in verse 14. And when they came to see what had happened, they were afraid because, you know, they saw these two men clothed and sitting in their right minds instead of running around naked. How odd. You know, when these owners came and they saw the men, the two demon-possessed men, you know, not running around naked, 
wearing clothes now in the right minds, they were afraid of them. They had become new creatures in Christ. And instead of the people rejoicing for these these two men because they were restored, they, they, they asked Jesus to get out of town. They didn't want Jesus around. Here he heals these men. He helps them. He rescues them from their plight. And they want Jesus out of town. You see, they they want him out of town because if Jesus stuck around, he might do more harm to the local businesses. So Jesus, who realized that he wasn't wanted, he left. And the same thing today. If Jesus realizes he's not wanted, he'll just say, okay, have your own way. Do whatever you want. And one of the men who were delivered wanted to go with Jesus. But Jesus told him no. Jesus wouldn't let that man go with him. Which, you know, to us would seem odd. Why, why not, Lord? The man loved Jesus because Jesus had, had done a great work in his life. I mean, this man could have really been a, a good witness for Christ, a good testimony of what he did in his life. You know, he probably, he could, he could travel with Jesus and, you know, Jesus could put him out there and say, hey, you know, tell him, tell him, you know, what, what I did. The man could have told everybody what Jesus had done for him. Again, he would have been a great witness for Jesus' ministry. But Jesus knew that he should go home first and be with his family where he could be a witness to them. You see, effective Christian living has to start at home where people really know us. You know, when, when, when you tell a stranger, you know, what you used to be and how Christ saved you, yeah, you know, they take it with a grain of salt. But your family knows you better than anybody else. And at home is the hardest place to be a witness. That's why Jesus told him, you go home first. Show your family, tell your family. And if we can honor God in our homes, then we can think about taking our witness somewhere else. And somebody said once, he said, if you can't import it, don't export it. I mean, if you can't live it at home, you can't live it abroad. So the man stayed, as Jesus suggested. And verse 20 tells us that he began to proclaim the gospel in Decapolis. He began to tell people everything that Jesus had done for them, and all the people marveled, it says. And he became one of the earliest missionaries to the Gentiles. You see, Jesus goes and does the work, but he needs us to go and be missionaries elsewhere. Jesus left. The man stayed faithful to Jesus and to the grace and the power of Christ. And most likely, many of those Gentiles got saved because of this man who did what Jesus said. He went back home and he preached the gospel to his family and to those who knew him. 
Now in verses 21 through 34, we see two more miracles. So let's begin with verse 21. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, uh, came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and he begged Jesus earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. So Jesus went with him and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Here we see two more miracles. All right, the other one begins in verse 25 with the, 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 the woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. But the first miracle, the first one represents those who look for help. Like Jairus who went looking for Jesus. The second of, uh, of, the, of, this, uh, of those uh, witness here is the one that must receive help through the help of others. One illustrates Jesus' power over disease and the other illustrates his power over death. And in these two people's lives, Jesus shows the width, the length, the breadth, the depth of his love and his mercy. The backgrounds of of, of these two people were so different. Jairus was an important officer in the synagogue, verse 21 tells us. The woman, on the other hand, in the eyes of, of, of society, she was a nobody. Jairus was about to lose a 12-year-old daughter who has been his joy for 12 years. While the woman was about to lose an affliction that has caused her sorrow for 12 years. Jairus was an officer of a synagogue, so he was probably wealthy. While the woman, on the other hand, had absolutely nothing because she had given everything that she had to the doctors. But nothing helped. But for her, she was ceremonially unclean. She couldn't go to the synagogue. She couldn't worship. That kept her from having a social life as well as a religious life, which would be an extra burden to her. But both Jairus and this woman found their needs met at the feet of Jesus Christ. Now as Jairus is on, as he's on his way to his house, Him and Jesus are on the way to Jairus' house. It says that a woman now with a flow of blood that was incurable comes to Jesus. Notice verse 25. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from physicians. She had spent all her money and was no better, but rather she grew the worst. So here she is. She has this flow of blood. It's incurable. And it says in verse 26, man, she has suffered so many things from physicians. She spent all her money, but wasn't any better, even worse. Just imagine how weakened she was from this loss of blood. And how slowly this affliction was, was, was destroying her. The pain that she was experiencing. The emotional pressure. That drained her strength day by day. She was a social and religious outcast. This was her last hope. And here she let nothing stand in her way as she pushed and elbowed her way through the crowd to get to Jesus. I mean, we don't know what kind of faith that she had. Was it weak? Was it timid? Was it superstitious? 
She just kept telling herself that she had to touch him. That she had to be healed. So let's go from verse um, 26 to 27. When she, uh, 27. Uh, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And then it says, and Jesus immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging, thronging you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed uh, of your affliction. And while he was still speaking, some, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house and said, to, and said to him, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So she's she's... Looking for Christ. She keeps telling herself that she had to touch him to be healed. She'd heard others hear that Jesus healed. She'd heard other people that had been healed by by Jesus. So she thinks, why not her? So when she finally gets through, gets through to Christ, she wasn't disappointed. Jesus honored her faith and healed her body, verse 29 says, which is a good lesson for us. Not everybody has the same amount of faith, but that doesn't keep Jesus from responding. Thank God it's not based on my faith, but on Christ's faith, his goodness. When we believe, he shares his power with us and something happens in our lives. It's one thing to follow Christ. It's another thing to trust him. And Jesus made it clear that it was her faith in him, not some magic thing in in touching his clothes. That made her whole. It wasn't positive thinking. Not only did he heal her physically. But spiritually. And notice in verse 34. What he called her daughter. He called her daughter. The apostle John says. As many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children. That is sons and daughters of God. To those who believe in his name. John 1. 12. And and in her condition, remember, she was an outcast, a social outcast and a religious outcast. And that's one thing I love about Psalm 147, verse 2. It says, he gathers the outcasts. Jesus gathers the outcasts. In verse 34, the words to be made well meant more than just a physical healing. It meant a spiritual healing as well. Now let's get back to Jairus' emergency. It was bad enough that this woman had stopped Jesus. But here's Jesus and Jairus. Again, they had to elbow their way through the crowd, which slowed them down as they were trying to get to Jairus's daughter. And by the time one of the uh, Jairus's friends had made his way to Jairus, he told him in verse 35, look at, he says, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Let's read from 36 now, uh, verse 36 to the end of the chapter. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. 
And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed Jesus. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given to her to eat. So again, he's going, he's making his way through the crowd, he's, him and Jesus, they're trying to get to Jairus' house, and as he's going through the crowd, here comes some, some, some of the guys from, from Jairus' home, and they tell Jairus, your daughter has died, so don't bother Jesus anymore about coming over. But hopefully the things that Jesus had shared with a bleeding woman, Jairus was close by and hopefully he was listening to him. Hopefully he was paying attention to what Jesus was saying to the bleeding woman. It's beautiful to see what Jesus did with Jairus and how he led Jairus to victory here. And through this whole ordeal with Jairus, it was Jesus' words that made the difference. Now, look at, let's look at the three things that Jesus said to Jairus. First, it was the word of faith in verse 36. Notice what he says. As soon as Jairus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, that is, as soon as Jesus heard what Jairus' friends had told him, which was, your daughter's dead. Don't bother Jesus anymore about coming to the house. What did Jesus say? Do not be afraid, only believe. What's key here is what said, first, it said that as soon as Jesus heard the word, that is, he heard what Jairus' friends had told him. Jesus could have said, well, yeah, there's no bother going to your house. It just, you know, we just, it's just the way it is. But he tells them, don't be afraid, only believe. You see, it says here that Jesus heard the word that was spoken, that is, by the other man. Jesus overheard what was said. What was the word? Well, it, it, it was something said by the others to Jairus. Here's the point. Jesus not only hears everything that we say to others, but everything that others say to us. I mean, what comfort, comfort there is in knowing that, especially when unpleasant things are being said to us like that, that word that was told to Jairus. You know, whatever it was. Whatever that word was that Jesus overheard, notice there were three negative things about it. First, what Jairus' friends told him was a discouraging word. Your daughter is dead. Now, Jairus' messengers could have been a little more compassionate, maybe pulled him aside when he delivered the message. They could have pulled Jairus aside and told him. Secondly, it was a word of misguidance. Hey, why trouble the teacher any further? 
You see, to, to, to human understanding, the circumstances did now seem hopeless. What's the use? So instead of encouraging, hey, hey, well, you know what? Go see what Jesus has to say. Go see what Jesus can do. Don't bother. So it was a word of misguidance by these men talking to Jairus. It was taken for granted that even though Jesus had healed the sick, he couldn't raise the dead. And beware of people who tell you there's no hope. Beware of people who will tell you, well, you know, listen only to Jesus. A lot of times people want to become helpful, but a lot of times they really interfere. They will misguide you. They become little gods telling you what you should and shouldn't do. I want to find out what God wants to do. They may think there's no hope in my circumstances, but what does God have for me? What does he want to do? They told him, hey, there's no hope. Jesus heard him say that. Now what does Jairus do? Jesus tells Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe. Jairus' his friends tell him, hey, your daughter's dead, don't bother Jesus anymore. What does Jairus do? You see, at this point, Jairus had to either believe his messengers about his daughter being dead and not bothering Jesus, or believe in what Jesus said to him. Do not be afraid, only believe. And there is no doubt that with, with, with Jairus' whole heart, he believed with great, great sorrow what he heard that his precious daughter was dead. The third thing that was spoken to Jairus that Jesus heard, it was a, it was a word of deep hurtfulness. In other words, it was a word that was so hurtful. Again, you know, you can, we can all imagine a child being told, our child is dead. There would be such deep pain, such hurtfulness that it would like, you know, it, it was meant to draw Jesus or Jairus away from Jesus. Don't bother him anymore. It was just the thing to break Jairus's faith. And it was said in such a way as to make Jairus to seem rather silly to think Jesus could do anything now. So why seek him? Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? So, you know, you think I'm still going to go. It, it, it would, you know, again, it would seem to be a silly thing to do because my daughter's dead and, and why bother with Jesus? She's gone. It's too late. There's nothing more that can be done. It would be ridiculous for you to go any further. Jesus hears that. Now, after Jesus heard that word that was spoken to Jairus, Jesus assured him, don't be afraid, continue believing. In other words, Jairus, you had a certain amount of faith when you came looking for me. And your faith was helped when you saw what I did for that woman. So don't quit believing, keep on believing. Because what I did for her, I can do for you. 
But you see, it was easier for Jairus to trust in the Lord while his daughter was alive, still alive. And while Jesus was still walking with him to his house, you know, I can imagine what I would be saying. Oh, this is great, man. You know, we got out of the crowd. You know, I got a hold of you. And and now we're walking on the way to my house and everything's going to be okay. But when Jesus stopped to heal the bleeding woman and the messengers came with the bad news, he just about lost his faith. Here's the lesson for us to learn. At times, we've probably done the same thing as Jairus. We've given in to doubts because our circumstances seem so bad, so hopeless, so beyond repair. Our circumstances seem to be so much bigger than our God. And when we let that happen, our circumstances and our feelings overwhelm us. And sometimes God has delayed answering our prayer. Just as as, as Jairus is on the way home and and hoping to bring Jesus with him, this woman stops him. There was a delay in in Jairus' prayer or Jairus' hope. But it 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 didn't stop the miracle. God delays sometimes, but it's not because he doesn't care. But it's to teach us to hope in him, even in delays. We saw it with Martha and Mary when Lazarus, their brother, had died. Jesus waited a couple of days before he came to to see Lazarus when uh, the messengers told Jesus that that Lazarus was sick. He He told his disciples, well, we'll just stay here a couple more days and then we'll go see him. And Martha got pretty, she said, well, you know, if you'd have gotten here sooner, he wouldn't have died. I mean, I think you can, you can hear what she's saying. Upset that, that there was a delay. But he still raised Lazarus from the tomb. You see, that's when we need, first of all, that special word of faith from the Lord. And we receive it as we spend it in his word. It's his word that we need to listen to. It's his word that we need to have faith in. It's his word that is to guide us. People mean well, but they don't know what God will do. They don't know what he's going to do in my situation. The second thing that, that, that Jairus needed was the word of hope there in verse 39. When Jesus and Jairus got to the house, they saw and they heard the mourners in verse 38. And they were, to, they were there to lead the family in weeping and mourning for the departed one. That's what the, the mourners were there to do. The mourners would go to the home and they would lead everybody in, in weeping and mourning for the one that had passed away. Jesus asked them in verse 39, notice. Why make this, why make this commotion, commotion and weep? And he tells them, the child is not dead, but sleeping. Which is another a term that the Bible uses for, for, for death. Why make all of this commotion? Why are you weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. These, these were words of hope to Jairus and his wife. To the, belief, to the believer, death is only sleep until the moment of resurrection. You see, the body goes into the grave and the body is sleeping, but you see the spirit goes up to the Lord. 
The body's sleeping, but the spirit leaves the body. The spirit doesn't sleep, and the spirit goes to be with Jesus. It's the body that's sleeping that's waiting for the return of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. I mean, what an encouragement for all of us who have had Christian loved ones and friends leave us in death. It's Christ's word of hope to us. And the third thing that, 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 that Jairus needed to hear in verse 41 was the word of love and power. When Jesus said, notice, Talitha Kumi. That's Aramaic for little girl, get up. She not only came back to life, but she was healed of her sickness because she was able to get out of bed and walk around. And just like the other times Jesus said, you know, to this, to this girl, don't tell anybody about this. Then he said, just give the girl something to eat. And so the morning was turned into singing. So in closing, Jesus Christ, God's servant, is the conqueror over danger, over demons, over disease, and over death. And these miracles show us how Jesus met and helped all kinds of people. You know, people from, from, his, uh, from his own disciples to a couple of demon-possessed men. And he assures us that he's able to help us today. Now, it doesn't mean that God is obligated to always rescue his people from danger. Or to heal every affliction. But it does mean that he holds the ultimate authority and that we never need to be afraid. As Paul said, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because these two men had given in to Satan, they had lost their jobs, their homes, their families, and their friends. They lost their decency as they ran around naked in the tombs. They lost their self-control, and they lived like wild animals, screaming, cutting themselves, scaring the citizens. They lost their peace, and they lost their way, and they lost their purpose in life. And they would have stayed that way again if it hadn't been for Jesus Christ, who came through the storm to rescue them. How all of this speaks to us this morning. Because Jesus still overhears. And because he overhears, he can overrule. So no matter how discouraging and hopeless the reports are or the setbacks are in our lives, always remember Jesus overhears. And Jesus can overrule. Father, we thank you so much for this chapter, Lord, and the lessons that we have in it, God. And Lord, help us to remember these things. Help us to know uh, these passages, God, so that when we encounter these kinds of things, God, we can be encouraged, we can be strengthened, and we can be brought through the storms of life, God. And the circumstances, God, won't overcome us. But we know that Jesus can overrule our circumstances. No matter bleak, no matter how bleak they might seem, how hopeless, God, even in death, God. We look to you, Father. We trust in you for all things. It's your word that we need to hear, God. And so, Father, we just thank you for this time. And, Father, we just pray now that you would bless our time in communion, Lord, as we partake of the cup and the bread, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.